you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along, I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You may be seated. I want to welcome those of you just uh, arriving for Bible class this morning. Glad you made it. I'm trying to sing. I want to sing. I don't think my voice is awake yet. Is it just me? Uh, listen, do, do something with me. We don't traditionally do this, but but I, I want your mind to be alert. Uh, I think what we're studying this morning is so important. I want you to repeat after me. I know we don't do this a lot. Uh, we're not very good at it because we don't practice it. But but listen, I'm going to say something. I want you to repeat it back to me. The battle is real. That was pretty good. I take back that thing. I said we're not very. That was pretty good. The enemy is deadly. The stakes are high. Man, y'all are, maybe I just needed more sleep this morning. Y'all are good. Listen, th- this, this idea of a spiritual battle, we, we need to understand that there's a battle going on. You don't see it. It's not the weapons of this world's warfare. It, it's a, it's a, spiritual battle of ideology of the way that we think the way that we live choices that we make things that affect our relationship with God relationships with each other when I say the stakes are high we're talking about eternity we're talking about choices that we make in this lifetime that touch eternity Choices that we make now that, that determine whether we go to be with God forever or whether we miss out on the joy and the privilege of heaven. We've been, we've been looking at, you know, who is the enemy? How does he work? How do we defend ourselves? And I know some of you may be looking at your outline thinking, didn't we already do this? Well, to some degree, we, we started, how does he work? We're, we're, we're saying, look, you have to understand your enemy if you want to overcome his work in your life. And so, part of what I said is, is that there's a very logical, progressive, kind of if you look at his game plan and how he works, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I said, you know, how does he work? Sometimes in sports, coaches will, will scout the other team. And there were times when I played basketball, our coach did such a good job scouting the other team I knew their play. And as a ball moved from one side of the court to the other, I knew where the players were going to go and, and that ball was going to come back. I could anticipate and I could intercept the pass. I knew their play better than they did. We need to understand the devil's game plan so we can defend against it. And when I said about it being logical and progressive in our previous lesson what, what we were really looking at is, first of all, if you'll bring this up for me, he's going to do everything he can to keep you out of the kingdom of God. 
We're going to go through this really quickly because this is a review of the last lesson. But, but we said, first of all, if he can, he'll try to keep you in ignorance and unbelief. If he can steal the Word of God, even, even this morning, I've prayed about this, I've prepared for this, I know sometimes we're physically tired and that affects how we think and how we listen, and, and sometimes we're distracted by the cares and, and the pleasures and, and all the things of this world, and, and if the devil can keep us distracted so that we will not hear, we will not listen, if he can keep us in ignorance and unbelief, he'll keep us out of the kingdom. And, and what we said in our last lesson, if that doesn't work, he'll use false teachers to mislead you. Here now you're listening, but the people that, that are teaching are, are, are misleading you. And so you have a false sense of security because you, you think that they're telling you the truth. You think that they're leading you to where God wants you to be. But they're false teachers and they're misleading you. And, and the devil doesn't care how sincere you are about your faith, about what you believe, as long as you are misguided in your faith or in your beliefs. And if that doesn't work, then he will resort to keeping you from making a, a faith response. Now we're talking about delay tactics. We're, we're talking about procrastination that, that I know that I know now I've heard and I understand and I'm convicted and, and I realize that I need to make important changes in my life. I need Jesus in my life. And, and I'm going to come to Christ, but not right now. Eventually, someday. And if He can keep you there, He will keep you. Kind of, kind of in that limbo of, of knowing that you're not where you ought to be, that, that there are changes you should make and you're going to, but not yet. All of that to keep you out of the kingdom. Some of you think we're halfway through the sermon, just looking at your outline. Wouldn't that be great? That's just review. When that doesn't work. When he can't keep you out of the kingdom. When when you put on Christ in baptism and all your sins are washed away and God adds you to, to his family, then the devil's game plan changes. It shifts. And now he's going to do everything he can to draw you back into the world. He wanted to, he wanted to keep you in the world, but, but you left the world and you, and you entered into the church. Now you're in the church. He wants to, to find a way to draw you back out of the church, back into the world. One of the first things he will do is he'll try to get you re-entangled in sin. And, it's interesting, Hebrews 12.1 uses this sin so easily entangles. If you'll look at the verse here, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Folks, that's what sin does. It, it, it entangles us. It has a way of tripping us up and, and binding us and keeping us from moving forward in the direction that God wants us to go. But I, I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that we all stumble, stumble over the same thing. We don't. There are people here this morning that stumble with their words. They gossip or slander or lie. There are people who get entangled in things like drugs or alcohol or pornography or some other addictive habit. Some people are entangled by the world and the things of the world. 
They love money and everything that, that money can buy. They, they want experiences and things and pleasure. Uh, others are entangled by pride and selfishness or envy or jealousy or, or discontent. Listen, here, here's the point I'm trying to make. We're not trying to name all the things that entangle us. What, what I'm trying to say is if you've escaped such things, whatever the specific uh, besetting sin is in your life, if you've escaped it, the, the devil's main goal is to get you re-entangled in that sin. He doesn't care about the specific sin so long as you're wrapped up in it. So, so long as your life is entangled in that sinful behavior. And, and I, I think there are people, religious teachers, who, who don't think that it's possible that once you're saved, they, they don't think you can get re-entangled in, in sin. But I want you to listen to what God says to us as He speaks through His inspired Word in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20-22. He says, If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. I want you to think very seriously about what Peter says here. He says there are people who have escaped what he calls the pollutions of the world. But they're entangled in them again. Through their knowledge of Jesus Christ, they, they were set free. They, they had a great escape. But now they're entangled in the very things that the blood of Jesus freed them from. They're entangled in those things all over again. I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. And as you turn to Acts chapter 8, we're, we're going to look at an example of, of what we're trying to describe this morning. It's, it's a story of Simon the sorcerer. He practiced sorcery. He deceived people for many years. And, and, and I, I want you to notice, it'll be on the screen, but I hear some of you turning over there to Acts chapter 8. In verse 10, listen to what the people in that city said about him. They said, this man is the divine power known as the great power. Now, your, your translation may uh, have a different variation of that, but the divine power. They were so impressed by this guy, they called him the divine power known as the great power. He developed notoriety because he amazed people and they followed him, but, but then something happened. Here's what happened. Philip came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and many in that city, when they heard the message about Jesus and about the kingdom of God, when they heard that, it says both men and women were baptized. That's chapter 8, verse 12. Verse 13 says, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And th 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 this is... This is great, but it's, the whole story is about to go sideways. Here's, here, here's a guy who, he, he sees authentic miracles. 
He hears a message. He believes the message. He's baptized. He's a new creature in Christ. But something bad is about to happen in this story. If you have your Bible open, we're going to start here in verse 14 and read through verse 19. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, listen, he offered them money saying, give me this power also that that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about what Simon gave up when he became a Christian. When we first meet Simon, he's really the talk of the town. He, He amazed the people that city. Everyone was talking about him all of the time, saying how great he was. In verse 10, notice that the Bible says they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. He he was given a lot of attention. And not, and not just by people in the society that, that some would describe as the least, but those who were envisioned as being great. They were all giving this man a lot of attention. Verse 11 says uh, basically the same thing. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... I think he saw an opportunity to regain some of his former glory. He he used to be the center of everyone's attention. And it seems to me that he wanted to return to that kind of prominence. The, the kind of notoriety that he enjoyed before his conversion to Christ. As you think about Simon, and, and by the way, if you keep reading, Pete, Peter is, Peter's going to tell him, your heart is not right. You tried to buy the gift of God with money. Your heart is not right. And as you think about that, I think these words are on the screen. We have a song called Buried with Christ. Would you bring that next slide up? This is the first verse of that song. And I can't tell you how many times I've sung these words and had this thought. Okay, listen. Buried with Christ, my blessed Redeemer, dead to the old life of folly and sin. Satan may call. The world may entreat me. There's no voice that answers within. When we sing that song, we sing what should be. But that's not always the way it works. In in this story, Satan calls. The world entreats. And inside of Simon, there was a voice. There was a voice that answered within. You, you, you think very seriously this morning about your life before Christ, without Christ, whatever, whatever the habits were. Don't you understand that the desire for those things don't magically just disappear? You come up out of the water, you've said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And somebody plunges you under that water. And you understand spiritually, you're dying to sin. You're being buried with Christ. You're being raised to walk a brand new life. Do you really believe the devil's never going to come calling? 
Do you really believe the world will not entreat you? And one of the sneaky things the devil does after people enter into the kingdom, when he can't keep men out, I think he'll start calling to you. I think he'll start giving you opportunities to get right back into the mess. We sing, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we'll go right back to the filth. The things that the blood of Jesus cleansed us from our participation in those things, we'll go right back to it. We've got to be careful that we don't let them do that to us. Next, if that doesn't work, he'll encourage apathy and lukewarmness. He, he understands that the lukewarm Christian is ineffective. The apathetic Christian is going to do very little to share his faith or build up the the, the kingdom, to expand the borders of the kingdom. He understands that this is literally something... I mean, the Bible says this makes Jesus... It just makes Him sick. If you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verses 14 through 19. There's a letter written to a church in a city, Laodicea. And I'm just going to read some of what this says. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Lukewarm Christians do not have the joy that God wants them to have. They're just going through the motions. They show up in Bible class, they come to worship, they sing the songs, they, they say the prayers, eat the bread, sip the juice, throw, throw some money in the plate. I mean, they, they do everything that, that, that we've done together this morning, but, but somehow they've lost the spirit of it all. The zeal and the passion and the joy of, of being so loved by God that He would purchase us with the blood of His Son. The joy of it all is somehow lost. And this danger is magnified because it's insidious. It doesn't happen all at once. Apathy slowly seeps into your life over a long period of time, and, and it keeps you from growing. It keeps you from worshiping God with, with passion, reaching out to others with, with, with zeal. This is the scariest part of being uh, lukewarm and apathetic. The ones who are guilty are the last to see it. If, if you just look at verse 17 again, 
the Laodicean said, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. These people are, are, are so lethargic, so apathetic. They're blind to their true condition. They say we're rich. Jesus says, you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked, and you don't even know it. They were stagnant and spiritually stale. They, they were oblivious. Satan deluded them into spiritual apathy. If he, if he can't keep you out of the church, he'll try to draw you back into the world. If that doesn't work, He's content to leave you right where you are this morning. If it doesn't mean anything to you. It doesn't bother Him that you're sitting here this morning. If you are lukewarm and apathetic about your relationship with God. He's happy to leave you right where you are. If all the passion is gone, if all the zeal is gone, listen, that, that, that brings up the, the, final, the final point before we get to that. Just think about this question. What, what does Satan do when, when you're not apathetic or lukewarm about your faith? What does he do with a Christian who is on fire and is passionate about the Lord? If you're a person of integrity and wisdom and honor and, and, and you may maintain healthy relationships, not just with God, but, but with other people that, that are part of our spiritual family and, and you have a strong track record of church attendance and faithful giving and daily Bible study and active service and and kind of energetic in outreach, then what does the devil do? He knows that tempting you with some obvious moral sin or some forbidden pleasure, he knows that's not going to be effective. That's when he decides to use this last thing here, fatigue and discouragement. He'll try to get you so tired and so discouraged that you just give up. This frightens me. Because I think the real danger for so many people here this morning is, is this third point. I don't think I'm preaching to people who are apathetic or lukewarm about their relationship with God. I don't think that I'm preaching to people who are eager to go back into the world to be re-entangled in the very things that you were freed from. I believe I'm preaching to people who are passionate about their life with God. And here's, here's well, let's just read two verses. Let, let's start with Galatians 6 and verse 9, where Paul says, Let us not grow weary of, of doing good, for in due season uh, we will reap if... If we don't give up, 
And then Hebrews 12 and verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Here's what concerns me. A couple observations. First, the only reason God warns us not to get weary and discouraged is because he knows there's a very real possibility that something like that can happen to us. God is not wasting time in the, in the word that he's given us, proposing you know, problems that are not possible. What, what he's saying here is don't, don't get weary and discouraged because he knows there's a tendency for good people to get weary and discouraged. He knows that something like that can happen to us. When I was younger, I heard older men talk about the danger of burning out uh, in ministry, and, and I believed that I was kind of immune to that possibility. I was, I was so on fire as a, as a young minister. I, I loved the Lord. I loved the ministry so much. I couldn't, I couldn't even conceive of something like that being possible. But the longer I serve and the older I get, the more I understand why faithful men burn out. Sometimes I jokingly say in our staff meeting, God's reward for good work is to give us more work. And what I mean by that is, as you look at Christians who are proficient in the sharing of their faith, and they, they've demonstrated an ability to help people with the problems that they're facing. They draw a lot of people to them. When, when people find out that you care and, and that you can help them, they, they're going to come to you. And then you find that you're not really just carrying the, the burdens of your life. You're, you're carrying all the burdens of their lives as well. And you love people and you love God. And so you just want to do more and more to serve God and help people. And the more people you help, the more people that come to you. And the harder it becomes. Sometimes you get tired. And that, that really leads to the second observation, which is discouragement usually comes when we're exhausted. I think the, the word order in Hebrews 12 and verse 3 is important. Lest you become weary and discouraged. Spiritual fatigue comes first, then we get discouraged. I think the devil knows this and he uses it against us. He, he knows that it's easier to discourage tired Christians. If you... If you Confront me with the same problem. It's the same thing, but in one case I'm well rested. And in the other I'm tired. I handle the conflict or the challenge or the difficulty, the hardships of life. I handle all of that better when I'm rested. Everything seems bigger when I'm tired. Problems seem more challenging and insurmountable. When I'm tired. I think there are a lot of good Christians who love God and they're working hard and they're pouring themselves out in service to other people. The problem is they don't, they don't take time to let God refill their cup 
they, they, keep, they keep pouring themselves out until they become dry and empty. I, I want to warn you this morning that when you do that, you become very vulnerable to a, to a severe form of discouragement. And that leads to the final observation about, about this, this point that the fatigue described in Hebrews transcends physical and emotional exhaustion. It's a weariness of the soul. He, he talks about lest you become weary and discouraged, not, not in your body, not in your mind. He's talking about a weariness and, and a discouragement that affects the soul. And when you get to that point, you're much more susceptible. That, that kind of weariness makes you much more susceptible to the kind of discouragement that causes good people to give up. And some of you might not realize how dangerous that is. I think the devil understands everything I just described and he'll use that. He'll use that to his advantage. You'll look at somebody and say for their lifetime, for their lifetime, they've been faithful. They, they never wandered off into, into any of the moral filth that, that entangles so many other people. They've always been good. They've been so godly. They've been so sacrificial, so loving, so kind. And, and, and the world just kept piling more and more response. And they kept receiving more and more responsibility. They kept pouring themselves out in love and pouring themselves out until they became dry and empty and tired and discouraged, and it was just too much. And they gave up. That is tragic. That's how sneaky and underhanded the devil is. He'll use your own good heart against you. The goodness and the kindness and compassion that drives you to love and serve other people. I want to ask you a question I think is really important. How do you refill your cup? What is it that refills your cup or recharges your spiritual batteries? That, that, is, a, that is really an important question you need to consider this morning. It might be worship or fellowship or service or quiet time or exercise or personal study. It might be something as simple as sleep. Whatever it is. Listen, some people are energized by being around other people. Some people, that, that, that's what drains them. And then they need to be alone so that, so that God can recharge them and they're ready to go out and face the world. Whatever it is for you that you, you need in your life. You need to build time into your life for the things that refill your cup, that recharge your batteries, that, that revive your spirit. Because you can get so tired, if you're not careful, you can become so tired that you think about giving up. I want to make a recommendation that, that some of you will not take seriously, but you ought to. That there are some people here this morning that what you need more than anything else is not a, another ministry. 
is not another Bible study, is, is not another visit to make, is, is not another burden to carry. What you need more than anything else this morning is you need, you need to rest. You know, you don't hear that from this pulpit very often. I think that's a mistake. I think sometimes we push and we drive and we and we prod and and I understand all of that. I, I get this my utmost for his highest. I get that. I feel it in me. It drives me. Dale Hartman, if you'll bring up this line, I think this is so helpful. He's talked to our boys at preacher training camp and he said, you know, sometimes. The most spiritual thing a tired Christian can do is rest. Would you listen? Could you hear the voice of your Savior as He speaks to you this morning through the pages of Scripture? Come to me, all of you who are weary. And heavy laden. And I'm going to overwhelm you. I'm going to lay so much on you. It's all up to you. And it's going to crush the joy. It's going to crush the, the passion. It's going to take away all the spirit of it. That's not the invitation, folks. And if that's the way we feel, we didn't get that. From him. Some of you may have gotten that from me. But you didn't get that from him. He said, You come to me, I'll help you rest. If you feel that in your soul and you need that more than anything else, you need to come to him this morning as we stand and sing.